Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Uh, we want to welcome everyone to the Determined Truth Podcast. I'm Rob Dalrymple and co-host Vinny Angelo is here uh, as well. And today we have a very special guest, uh, David Crump. David is a retired professor of New Testament at Calvin College and a former pastor with more than 30 years of combined experience in the pulpit and the classroom. He has his MDiv from Regent College and his PhD from Aberdeen, and he's written a fantastic book that we're going to be talking about today. It's called Like Birds in a Cage, Christian Zionism's Collusion and Israel's Oppression of the Palestinian People. Uh, Dave has written a number of other books as well, including Encountering Jesus, Encountering the Scripture, Reading the Bible, Critically in Faith, and Knocking on Heaven's Door, as well as a New Testament theology of petitionary prayer. So, David, we want to thank you for being here with us. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, and uh, David, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself a little bit, your family, your background, and, uh, and I think you're in Montana now. Uh, yes, we retired in Northwest Montana, where my wife grew up. Uh, she and I met when we were both students at the University of Montana in Missoula in the early 70s. We both loved the place. We always had to determine that, Lord willing, we'd like to retire back to this part of the country again, back to the state. So here we are. And we have three adult children and one granddaughter. And we're very blessed in that our, our two daughters actually live just down the road. Wow. And we get to provide the daycare for our five-year-old granddaughter every day when her mother's off to work. Wonderful. So we, we live a very, very fortunate, blessed life here. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, we want to discuss uh, your book uh, again. It's an excellent book, and it, it, it's like a, a dissertation. I mean, it, it's really thorough in terms of uh, context and the footnotes are, are uh, you've clearly done your homework. So uh, thank uh, you honestly, for- can I just speak to that? Like yesterday, just refreshing and reading through just the bibliography. That was amazing. <laughs> like uh, like the, the, the amount of research you did on that alone is like, that is unbelievable. Oh, well, thank you. I'm just a natural born nerd, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, what's interesting, David, is I think your story is actually very similar to my story and actually very similar to, to Vinny's story in, in a way. Uh, you grew up uh, with certain convictions of in, in your childhood and believing that Israel was God's chosen people. Uh, was it a pastor's family that you're part of? Well, my father, he was in the army during the Korean War. Okay. When he got out, he had become a Christian in high school through the Salvation Army. And he went to enroll in the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, Biola yeah, yeah. College. And he attended there for a while before he eventually got out of that and went back into the military again. But he, through that process, became a very, very uh, deeply confirmed fundamentalist Christian Zionist. And those are the kinds of churches that I was raised in. As we travel around the country, we'd always seek out that sort of a church to be a part of. So Christian Zionism was just a part of Christian orthodoxy, as far as I understood, uh, all throughout my life, up until the time I began to attend college. And then much to my surprise, I discovered that not all Christians thought this way. And that was new to me. Wow. Wow. Now, 
you, you talk about your, your background and, and, and what happened. And, and I think you said that one of the transformations for you theologically was studying Romans 4. Explain what happened there and what Romans 4 is about. Yes. Well, that probably was during my sophomore or, or junior year. I think it was my second or third year of college. When I went to the University of Montana, I very quickly became involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and quickly discovered that there were Christians, you know, faithful followers of Jesus in all these other denominations that I had been brought up to believe were liberal and unfaithful, liberal Christianity. Well, I discovered that they loved Jesus every bit as much as I did, maybe more so, actually. And I began to read InterVarsity literature, published authors like Jim Packer and John Stott, and discovered these guys weren't Zionists, and they're great Christian evangelical theologians. So this was the bigger context of my mind being opened up. And during my high school years, after my conversion experience, I adopted that habit that I was trained to adopt of having a daily quiet time, we called it. And InterVarsity encouraged that too. So I was having my daily quiet time at this period in the book of Romans. And I'm reading through Romans and I get to the section in Romans chapter four, where Paul is talking about the way God has fulfilled his promises to Abraham. And he says that anybody who has faith in Jesus Christ automatically becomes a son of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham. And that just, it, it certainly wasn't the first time I had ever read that passage, but it hit me like a ton of bricks at that moment. And I, I vividly remember sitting on the edge of my bed in my little shanty of an off-campus apartment. It was half of a garage that a guy had developed into two apartments. And I suddenly thought to myself, wait a minute, if faith in Jesus makes me a child of Abraham, well, what is the definition of the people of Israel? They're descendants of Abraham. And if they're descendants of Abraham, and I and every other Christian is a descendant of Abraham, then why does Zionism make this big deal about keeping the church and Israel distinct? Mm -hmm. And why is so much energy invested into seeing a unique separate set of promises fulfilled for ethnic national Israel in a way that furthers that division between Israel and the church. And that was the beginning of the end of my Christian Zionism. That distinction just could no longer hold water. And I began to look into it more thoroughly and it all just began to disintegrate along with my abandonment of dispensationalism and fundamentalism at the same time. Hey, David, I'm curious, uh, going through this experience, having a family, especially a dad who's deeply rooted in the heart of uh, the sort of uh, mindset, even from an academic standpoint, going to Biola back, back in the day when it had that kind of distinction, did this cause conflicts uh, from a family standpoint? Because this is one of those theological issues that can divide. Uh, what, right. what was that like? I know that it was deeply, deeply troubling to my father. 
I honestly don't know what my mother ever thought about it. Uh, but I know my father, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm right in saying that had I not been his son, my father would have been convinced that I was no longer a Christian. Mm. You know, I, wow. I had abandoned the faith mm-hmm. on that step. And I, I could see that in the way he talked to me about things. It was difficult. And it was always a problem it, till the day he died. It was always a problem, unfortunately. Wow. The, the, to the day he died. Interesting. One of the things you talk about a number of times in, the, in, in your book is your, your experiences in the land that you, you went there and you lived amongst the people for months, I think, at a time. And uh, so tell us about your, your personal experiences there in the land and what you learned and how that continued to shape your understanding of what's happening there. Well, once we became empty nesters and I had begun to educate myself more about the modern history of Israel and had begun reading alternative perspectives on that history, I became just deeply convicted that my people, so to speak, my wing of the church and my heritage had contributed so much to Israel's oppression of the Palestinian people as I began to understand it then. So I thought, I, I just began to feel, to use my evangelical language, you know, God putting this on my heart, <laughs> that we need to go and try to help in some way or another. So we began to search. I, I looked for a Palestinian-led NGO uh, where we would be under Palestinian local leadership. Uh, we wanted to live with a local family where we would pay our way to experience life as they experienced it there in the occupation. And we wanted to begin studying Arabic with them as well. And all of that, the Lord answered our prayers really wonderfully. And we began to see then, it wasn't just a matter of what I read in books, it would became a, a part of our own personal experience to see the way that the Israeli military, you know, regularly intruded into Palestinian lives and dominated them and I'd even use the word persecution. You know, we were there for the daily tear gassing in the streets of the village. We were there when the mothers had to greet their children at the door in tears because they were inhaling tear gas in the streets as they played. And I was very active in being sure that I went out and filmed this and photographed this and made a record of this. And we'd be began to hear the stories about the many, many people who had been arrested and beaten for no apparent reason, children who had been imprisoned because they threw a rock at a soldier. It all became very, very immediate and personal for us, which just deepened my conviction that I don't share this experience with them. I'm just a visitor. It's their life, not mine. But what I can do with my life is I can try to publicize this and speak about it as broadly as possible to as many people as possible. Hey, David, um, I'm the, in this trio, I'm the guy who has not yet visited uh, you know, Israel-Palestine. And my first experience hearing about any of this 
was w- through Rob's experiences as, as oh. Rob and I have known each other for many years. Yeah. And so that was the, that was a thing that, um, opened my eyes and, and Rob and I talked about that on our, on our last podcast, uh, just giving some background a little bit, but as I'm hearing your story as well, you're, you're, you know, without, we haven't gone too deep into this yet, but you're alluding to many of the same things that confirm exactly what Rob has experienced. And so for me, as someone who is, is only has access to what our national media tells us in, in a theological filter that is given to us in terms of how we are supposed to view things over there, this becomes a, a paradigm shift for me. This, this really rocks someone like myself. Cause now it's like, okay, mm-hmm. who do I believe? What do mm-hmm. I believe? And this becomes an issue there. Right. Mm-hmm. And so speaking for the, uh, the, maybe the person who hasn't experienced this firsthand, but it has, you know, here's the testimony of people who I trust who has experienced that. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the things that I hear is, uh, and, and you allude to this in your book is like, Hey, there's a, a bit of, uh, this that we are responsible for in a sense right um, that that much of the experience that's happening over there especially that palestinians are experiencing like like we're directly or indirectly re, you know responsible for especially in in the christian church in the west yes give us some of your thoughts on that because i know you you touch on that in the book yes well you're absolutely right the the evangelical church in america is maybe the largest lobbying group on behalf of the political Zionist government in Israel. We give millions and millions of dollars to the state of Israel every year. We send thousands of volunteers, basically, uh, to work in settlements, to help the settlers with their harvesting, all on stolen Palestinian land. We fuel the Israeli tourist industry. The vast majority of evangelical tourists never set foot in the West Bank, and they wouldn't think of going to Gaza. So they submit themselves to the Israeli propaganda program and then become, you know, international ambassadors of Zionist propaganda throughout the world. And all of it at the expense of, first, the Palestinian people in in general, But secondly, the Palestinian Christian church who are on the sidelines. You know, very few of these evangelical tourists ever consider going to worship the Lord Jesus with their Palestinian brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's that's a horrible, horrible testimony to the blindness and, frankly, ignorance of the American church. It's inexcusable really. And it, it troubles me very, very deeply. It, I actually just realized we've been talking about your book <laughs> that uh, we actually haven't referenced yet. Uh, do no. you want to, uh, do you, can you actually give a, a quick overview on, on this forthcoming book uh, that, that we've had the privilege to scan through? Sure. Sure. Thanks for asking. Well, as Rob mentioned, it's entitled like birds in a cage. And I came up with that title through a friend of mine. He is a Palestinian photojournalist who lives in the camp. And you have to buy the book and read the whole story to get the background. Okay, is that a good enough plug there? (laughs) That's fair. But (laughs) he was shot in the face Mm -hmm. by an Israeli soldier for absolutely no reason at all. He was simply taking pictures of what they were doing that day. They shot him in the face. 
And because he was very well known, this became an internationally covered story. And he was in hospital recovering from one of his numerous surgeries that he had. And his mother was there with him. And a reporter from Al Jazeera was there to cover his story. And his mother said to the journalist from Al Jazeera, something to the effect, again, the quotes in the book from an article, you know, the Israelis treat us like birds. You know, they come through every once in a while and they shoot at us like birds for target practice. Mm. And that's stuck in my head. And then as I experience more and more the way that the Israeli army really has captured all of these people under military occupation and oppresses them, I thought, you know, they're not just birds being shot at. They're birds in a cage being shot at. And that was the genesis of the book's title. It's something that uh, I wanted to right in order to do three things. One, I wanted to expose the fallacies of Christian Zionist biblical interpretation and do that not simply by the point-counterpoint contesting of various possible readings of scripture. That's been done before by other people very, very well and thoroughly but rather to get out the presuppositions in a way that's, that's similar to what Rob does here in his book, mm-hmm. which is a very good book. I recommend it to anybody. You should pick this up and read it. These brothers of mine. I wanted to go after the assumptions that direct the way they read scripture, and all of which are bogus, in my view. And I think I argue persuasively in the book to expose their bogusness. Hmm. Then secondly, I wanted to actually present a balanced history of the rise of Zionism in the state of Israel. The typical evangelical Christian only knows the Israeli talking points, the mythology. Israel was a tiny oppressed state that was being attacked by this vast Arab horde, and they miraculously came out victorious because they were God's people. Well, there's an abundance of evidence to show that that is not true. That's not the way it happened. Israel was the dominant power. None of those Arab armies were expected to be able to succeed over Israel. And people were predicting Israel was going to win. It's perfectly explicable through historical forces. So I wanted to tell that story for evangelical readers. And then thirdly, because I know that most evangelicals don't bother to visit the occupied territories, and they just buy the propaganda that all Palestinians are terrorists, I wanted to present this firsthand experience of what daily life is like for Palestinian people in Israel and in the occupied territories. So I tell a lot of stories, all from my own experience or from the stories that other people have told to me that I've been able to verify. So the book tries to weave those three trains of thought together. The goal, ideally, I pray for, is to try to help stimulate the conscience 
of God's people in the West and help them realize that our, our blind support for the state of Israel is, is truly a collaboration in evil. You know, the, the church has a long history of collaborating with imperialism, with colonialism, with genocide, with the slaughter of native peoples all around the world under the guise of mission and slavery. We did the same thing with slavery, right? I mean, exactly. We're bringing them here and they can get Christianized. So it's exactly. actually a good thing in the end. Exactly. Exactly. And now evangelicalism is guilty of continuing that heritage in its support for the state of Israel. And that needs to be stopped. And let's note here too, that you're not saying that all Palestinians are, um, are great people and that they're, they don't do terrorist activities. And you're not saying that all Israelis are bad people. In fact, we're, we're talking about the Israeli state, right? The government right. Uh, and right. not the average person. Exactly. And, and Vinny and I discussed that on, on the podcast that, that, had just, that just aired. Let's look now, let, let's turn to, to, to the scriptures and, and the interpretation of the scriptures. And again, we're not saying that if you are a Christian Zionist, you know, and you and I both know, uh, David, scholars that, are, that hold to Christian Zionism, that they're not mm -hmm. Christian or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. We're just saying, no. hey, there's a danger here. There's a, there's a danger in terms of what's going on, and what it means. But really, the, and what you do, I think, an excellent job of in your book is you, you do get down to, the, hey, these are the interpretive assumptions. And really what it comes down to, right, if I'm not mistaken, is how do we understand the Old Testament when it refers to Israel and the land and the promises of the, of the people? And I think what you're arguing, and tell me if I'm, if I'm correct here, is that the New Testament has to have an authoritative place in the church today on how we read the Old Testament. Right. Speak to that a little bit for us, if you will. Yes. Well, Christian Zionist apologetics uh, often would point the finger at people like you and I and say, well, we just have a presumption of New Testament priority. We just think that the New Testament is more authoritative than the Old Testament. And that clouds all of our perceptions on Scripture. And what I try to point out is that, no, 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 this is not a presumption. This is not just a presupposition that I arbitrarily or for whatever reason adopt and then impose upon the way that I read the scriptures. I try to explain a process that I call reading the Bible twice. We've got to read it first from beginning to end to learn the story and see how it all begins and what God has promised and what he's done in the past. But then once we get to the New Testament, what we discover, if we pay attention and if we don't allow other presuppositions to cloud our vision. What we see in the New Testament is that the apostles look backwards at the Old Testament and they reread it. In other words, it's read for a second time. And this second reading is always through the lens of Jesus Christ right. and his ministry. And they very, very clearly assimilate their understanding of Old Testament promises to what they believe is the fulfillment in Jesus, his cross, his resurrection, his ascension, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I try to present numerous examples of that second rereading of the Old Testament. And that simply arises through 
good old-fashioned inductive Bible study. You just read the text on its own terms and allow the Word of God to speak for itself. And if you do that and allow yourself to take it seriously, this, these are the conclusions you will come to. So I point out that I find it incredibly ironic that Christian Zionists will emphasize the importance of reading the Bible literally and allowing the plain sense of the text to come through for itself. When in fact, they do not do that for the Old Testament. For the they, New Testament. I, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Thank you. Yeah. They do not do that for the New Testament. Right. If you read the New Testament plainly and allow it to speak for itself, it reinterprets the old. In light of Jesus. Not, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. In light of Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As you point out so well in your book as well. Yeah, Jesus is that interpretive key that, un that unlocks the entirety of, of the Old Testament story. Exactly. Yeah, and it looks like, I mean, if you're really honest, it looks like at times the New Testament is kind of playing with the text. It's almost like, hey, that's no. not what the text says. But then when you realize that their interpretive yes. assumption is it's Jesus, you're like, I, that is what the text says. Exactly. Yeah. Jesus over and over said, and over again. Yeah. If you believe <laughs> Moses, you believe me because Moses wrote about me. It's like, oh, okay. So it's, it's about Jesus. And right. Yeah. Right. And what's what's really neat too, and, and what you, you, you also comment on is the fact that yeah, it's this fulfillment in Jesus that expands the promises of God. The promises right. of God are not limited to like one particular land and one particular people, but the, the purpose of the promises of God were ultimately to bless all nations and all places and all lands. And that's what happens through Jesus and obviously giving birth to the right. church. Right. Yeah. And Christian Zionists will respond to that by saying, well, you and I, we just have these presuppositions. Right. We want to spiritualize things. That's a hermeneutical presupposition. Or we want to universalize things. That's just a presupposition. And on and on. They have a lot of others. And what we would argue, and what I think I show pretty convincingly, mm -hmm. is that, no, these are not presuppositions. They are conclusions. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they are conclusions that clearly are drawn from the simple, straightforward, plain sense reading of the New Testament. Right. Yeah, I know that this is a struggle in, in my context, teaching in a local church, where uh, in, in, a, in a local church that has been heavily influenced by, you know, a, a Zionistic, uh, Christian mm -hmm. Zionistic reading of mm -hmm. scripture. And so even in the last few years, as, as I teach classes on how to read the Bible, or we're actually in going through a book of the Bible, once you start introducing the idea of a Christ-centered view of scripture and, and, and right. you know, reading the Old Testament in light of the Jesus event, it's one of those things where I think even my folks who have been heavily influenced by, you know, that other form of, you know, just thinking and that's how they've been influenced, they, they find it intriguing, but then they come up against, well, if, it, if, if what you're saying is right, Vinny, what does this mean for all this stuff I hold dear? Right. And, and convincing them, and that's a legitimate question, you know, mm -hmm. like it's something that you have faithful people who want to be faithful to the text are, are that's where they're starting from. Right, but right. showing them that, hey, I'm not making this up. This isn't just some weird spiritualized way of reading the scripture, showing them that this is literally the way 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John read the Old Testament. This is literally the way Paul read the Old Testament. Right. This is literally the way the author of Hebrews read the Old Testament. Like they are teaching us how to interpret the Old Testament. Uh, right. it, and even teaching it in that regard, I think has helped soften the, uh, soften that process for many folks on my end. And it, right, it is right. still a struggle because uh, you, have, you have well-meaning people who they're, mm-hmm. hey, they, they're learning from the people who they have trusted for years and right. faithful pastors who, you know, are in their own traditions there. Yes. Uh, and it, it, it is a difficult process. Uh, and I think many of us come to, once you see the light, you can't unsee it, <laughs> right? You see the man behind the curtain, yes. you can't unsee it. Right. Right. And, and that's the tough part is to not pull the rug out from underneath someone without giving them a place to land on it it's yeah. a land yes yes <laughs> yes that's right yeah well I think it's, oh, go ahead, another point i try to make i don't elaborate a great deal but i i think it's important to mention is as you're pointing out christian zionists are my brothers and sisters in christ right Amen. Uh, i would never deny that i do believe it's poor theology and i do believe that adhering to it prevents one from understanding the New Testament properly and from thus growing in what a real biblical theology has for them if they will let go of these old ways of thinking. However, the key point, I guess, in terms of Christian morality and ethics for me then is this. Why does the maintenance of a Christian Zionist ideology and it seem inevitably to lead to such disregard for the pain and suffering of other human beings. I mean, in theory, it should be entirely possible for a person to be a devoted Christian Zionist and actively criticize the state of Israel, insist that their behavior is unacceptable, and that the Christian church can no longer finance this Zionist government until they undo the oppression that basically equates with apartheid in Israel-Palestine. Christian Zionism in and of itself does not prevent that type of critique. So we have to ask ourselves then, why is that so lacking? And despite the fact that there are some people who say they do it, I find very little evidence of it in the literature or anywhere else. Well, I'm even wondering, going back to something you said originally, how much of this is uh, rooted in we our ignorance of history and yeah. then even the news sources we get nowadays. If, if I don't know any better, and I'm only fed one narrative. How could there be anything to critique? All I know is that the, the poor Israeli citizens are the constant victims of the evil terrorists mm-hmm. living on the other mm-hmm. side of walls who, mm-hmm. are, who are flopping uh, bombs you know, into their yards. Yes. If that's all I know, what else, what else do I go off of? Yeah. Yeah. That's basic. That's a terrible problem. You're right. You're right. Yeah. There's even one major <clears throat> Zionist institution, Christian Zionist institution that says that the Palestinians are collateral damage, mm. right? That they just happen to be in the way that this is the land that God gave to the Jewish people. So now, let me ask another question here, David, and I'm not sure that you address this fully in your book, but it's, it's certainly a question that, that's out there or a comment that's out there. And that is the analogy that's drawn with Joshua and the conquest so mm-hmm. when Joshua conquered the land and God gave it to the Israelites and they conquered the land and, the, and they just destroyed the, the inhabitants. So now the Jewish people today, it's their land and they're destroying the inhabitants and the Palestinians just happen to be those inhabitants. Right. Wrestle with that for us for, for a minute. 
Yeah, sure. Well, I would argue that this is another symptom of uh, people not taking the New Testament seriously enough and not really thinking through what the relationship is between Jesus, his life and ministry, the New Testament literature, and the way that it looks back upon and reinterprets the Old Testament. I would say, and this, this touches on a number of different issues, we could go into the direction of talking about the problems of nationalism in this whole tangle of issues. We could go in the direction of uh, talking about problems of not taking the covenant seriously and the failure of the average Christian to understand the threat of biblical theology in the canon. We could talk about replacement theology and supersessionism too. Because what the New Testament clearly presents, I don't see how anybody can disagree with this, is that the New Covenant has superseded or replaced the Sinai Covenant. And the Sinai Covenant was the framework for the conquest. You know, Joshua's promise of inheriting the land through military conquest, which was holy war, which is an entire different discussion, was something that occurred under the framework of the Sinai Covenant. And the Sinai Covenant offered promises, <clears throat> both curses and blessings, that were very, very material and this-worldly. You saw Yahweh's faithfulness to this nascent nation of Israel in the material world through land and crops and abundance, things like that. The new covenant has transformed all of that. And in the new covenant, as we were talking before, Jesus tells his people to be peacemakers. He tells them, no, you, you don't go and kill your enemies with the sword any longer. That, that was back then. Now you love your enemies and you pray for them and you bless them. It's a complete reversal because it's a new covenant. Mm -hmm. The conquest was an expression of Yahweh's holiness and his inability to countenance sin. So he was using Israel to make a holy land by purging it of wickedness because he intended to come and dwell there with his people, and he can't dwell in a perverted, idolatrous land. The final act of that holy war is going to happen at the parousia, where Jesus comes back again. And the final judgment, where Christ separates humanity, and only those with their names written in the land's book of life get into the new heavens and new earth, that's going to be, in a sense, the final battle of Yahweh's holy war. He will eliminate all wickedness then and dwell with his holy people in his holy new creation. But between Jesus and the final judgment, when Jesus returns, we live in the time of the new covenant, and no Christian can ever approve of, much less applaud, anybody's military venture. Nobody's slaughter of anybody else can ever be something that Christians can approve of. So that's the theological argument I would give for disavowing 
that analogy. Well, Joshua did it, so why can't Israel do it today? To maybe connect a thought then, because uh, you're even bringing up the concept of uh, how we view things like the covenants. And, and right off the bat, you're going to have a divide between someone on the dispensational side with someone uh, who, who holds to a, a covenantal theology. Uh, so it's not even merely just how do we view Israel? Like this is, this is knocking over a domino that's going to affect a number of other theological systems and, and just right. how we view things in general. But, uh, and most people, I don't even know if are thinking on the average layperson isn't thinking in those sorts of constructs, right? Uh, they don't realize that that's a thing, but you're going to then, uh, you know, look at old Testament covenantal, uh, promises given to Israel. And then in our modern times, we're going to look at something like the, the formation of the Israeli state in 1948. And we're going to say, Hey, this was actually a fulfillment of prophecy. This is a sign of God working uh, for his covenantal people. See, he hasn't forgotten them. He's giving them their land. That's rightly theirs. How do you respond to that? Right. That's yeah. Thank you. Well, I'll say two things. First of all, I would insist that what I've just laid out is not covenant theology. Mm -hmm. What I've laid out is biblical theology. <laughs> I am not a covenantal theologian. That's a whole different shtick. Uh, that has all kinds of other things involved in it that I reject. So that simple bifurcation between either covenant theology or dispensational theology is false. It's a false dichotomy, and we shouldn't let people get away with that. The second, okay, to get to the nub of your question then, which, what was your question again? <laughs> How do you respond? To I'm issues? getting old. No, no, it's, 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 it's good. How do you respond to issues of people uh, assuming that the 1948 formation of oh, the yeah. Israeli state is, is part of God's covenantal blessing to Israel? Right, right. Again, I'd say a couple of things. One, first of all, this is another piece of uh, Israeli Zionist propaganda. It's very much to their advantage to portray themselves to the rest of the world as this innocent victim that has only triumphed miraculously, implicitly through the grace of God, even though all of the early Zionist leaders were atheists or agnostics and did not personally believe that God had anything to do with their movement. It's to their benefit to portray it that way. Secondly, the early evangelicals who became so enthusiastic about that storyline coming out of Israel we're, again, adopting it really for their own apologetical purposes. You know, they saw it as another, uh, you know, plank in the platform proving the, the truthfulness and reliability of the Bible. Here's another example of a biblical promise that we can see here and now being fulfilled in history. So let's argue for the truthfulness of Scripture and the authority of the Bible and, you know, get more people on board with that. The problem that I have with that is twofold. One, you, you really need to be a biblical prophet to make that kind of judgment. And I don't see any Isaiahs or Jeremiahs around today who are available to interpret history for us in that way. So that's my first problem with it. My second problem with it is that it just is ahistorical. If you know the facts of the matter, and how things were really unfolding, uh, the birth of Israel is easily explained by very clear, plain historical phenomenon. Uh, there's no need for it to be miraculous at all. 
-hmm. In fact, it was a very, there was a lot of determination and persistence and ingenuity on the part of the political Zionist and labor Zionist leaders who led the early state. People like Chaim Weissman and uh, others. But there's also an awful lot of ugliness to it and backstabbing and wickedness that was involved in that. Now, the Lord can use that for sure, but it certainly isn't anything Christians should be baptizing as a glorious fulfillment of prophetic plan. What do you say then to someone who says, well, uh, the Jews have a right to this land because God gave it to them and it's theirs. And so we need to simply step out of the way and, and allow the Jews to return to this land. Right. There's so many things wrong with that. First of all, again, he's is not taking the New Testament seriously. I would I think it's safe to say that if the physical reclamation of the land of Israel was really that central to the gospel message, to the truth that Jesus had to proclaim to the world today, the New Testament would take opportunity to make that clear to us. And even a few Christian Zionists themselves will acknowledge that never happened. You know, the New Testament is just silent about that sort of thing. Uh, so the second thing I'd say then is that once more, this is a failure to take this transition from the Sinai covenant to the new covenant seriously. Those promises of fulfillment in very material terms was a part of the Sinai covenant. God started that with his covenant with Abraham, then elaborated it with his covenant to people at Sinai and beyond. And it spoke in terms of land and real estate and good crops versus bad crops, etc. The new covenant has abandoned that sort of thing. And if you're allowing yourself to see how the New Testament rereads the Old Testament, we've got to be willing to follow the Lord wherever he leads us. Now, that really is a matter of Christian discipleship. The Lord is going to lead us in unexpected directions. And if we say, no, Lord, I'm not willing to follow you in this new direction because I have this prior understanding of what you are supposed to be doing and you're not doing it, then that's an abandonment of true discipleship. There are other arguments that could be made, too. You know, we could talk about the various indicators that suggest that, well, those promises were fulfilled in their time. You know, Abraham was made a great nation. That's been fulfilled. That happened. Israel got the land. That's been fulfilled. That happened. And even when those promises were made and fulfilled, they were always conditional. You had to remain obedient. If you didn't remain obedient, you lost the promises. And that's a dimension of this entire issue as well. So I think I would look at a constellation of those issues, all of which could be elaborated a little bit further. Yeah, yeah the book of Joshua says, I think it's Joshua 20, and I have to look it up, that all God's promises were fulfilled. There was not one promise that was not fulfilled. Exactly. Now, I think you and I probably are a little different uh, theologically, and we don't have to figure that out. But uh, I look at 
the new covenant as a fulfillment of the old, not a replacement of the old, but it's just, and it might be semantics a little bit, but, but focus there. I see the old covenant as pointing all along to the ultimate fulfillment in, of God's people being transcending uh, na- national boundaries and the land being fulfilled. And, uh, the whole earth is full, uh, will be full of the Lord's glory. The psalmist, they're all pointing to this all along. And ultimately, of course, pointing us to, to Jesus. I think that's just more of a fulfillment. So I, and I, I wouldn't use the word replacement or, or, uh, or supersedes, but uh, nonetheless. So what does this mean today? Now, So let's talk just a little bit more here in the last few minutes so we finish up about uh, the modern situation now. The reality is the Jewish people have experienced the Holocaust. The Jewish people have this need for uh, an identity of their own, a place of their own where they can be secure. So there's no doubt about that. The problem, of course, is inherent in the fact that, yeah, but who are we, the nations of the earth, to simply just give them this land over here when that land was already occupied uh, and take it away and take away from the Palestinians? This, the modern state of Israel, also a little bit misnomer, is that they call themselves a democracy. It's, it's this Jewish democracy. And you say, no, it's not a democracy. It's an ethnocracy. Uh, explain right. what, what, why that's the case and what you mean by that. Uh, yes. An Israeli professor, I, forget, I think he teaches at the University of Tel Aviv. I'm not, I don't recall now. A guy by the name of Oren Yiftekel has, has written a very, very insightful book about his own country and his own history and society. And I borrowed that turn from him mm-hmm. where he explains the various ways in which Israel is really an ethnocracy, meaning that one ethnic group, namely the Jewish people, are given a superior position over mm-hmm. all other people, including Palestinians. And this is embedded in the legislation and the various social structures of society so that legally Jews have more rights, Jews have a superior status in their citizenship than Palestinians or anyone else. And that's the significance of that term, ethnocracy. Hmm. And, And one of the primary means that superiority is enforced is through the control of the land, that Jews are in control of well over 90%. I think it's about 93% of the land of Israel. And they're working to expand that even further, particularly now in the Galilee and in the West Bank with further and further settlements, what they themselves referred to as the Judaization project. They are Judaizing the land, which means the elimination of Palestinians because Jews are superior. And this links in to the whole history of what we could call Jewish exceptionalism, which I will accept in the Old Testament under the terms of the Sinai Covenant, but really has no place in society today. And not even within the Christian church in the terms that, in the way in which it has been secularized. You know, I would read Romans 9, 10, and 11 and say, no, God still has unfinished business with the Jewish people that he intends to get to at some point in the future. But this doesn't give anybody the right to discriminate and build a racist state, which is what the state of Israel is. In fact, under the generally accepted definition of apartheid, it's completely correct 
to call Israel an apartheid state. It's when one group of people is made superior by law over all other people. Hey, David, when's your book going to be uh, available for the public? We're, I mean, you, we're recording this on, what is today, the 27th of July. So this will launch in a week or so on our, our, our podcast. When can this become available? I'm in dialogue with my publisher about that now. They've been very kind with me in trying to speed the process up in light of the more recent violence that's mm-hmm. been happening in Israel and Gaza. The latest word is they think it should be available somewhere around October 1st. Oh, that's but I'm also, I'm also trying to learn about when the pre-publication information for advertising will come out. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm asking them to make a, a web link somewhere on the publisher's website where it can be ordered pre-publication as well. And I haven't received any word yet on what the timing for that will be. Okay. And who's publishing it? Just so we know where to look. Yeah. Wiffenstock. Okay. It's under one of their imprints. I think it's Cascade. It's Cascade. Okay. Yeah. Cascade books. And that's an interesting story. I, I sent my proposal to a lot of different publishers who either just rejected it out of hand without even responding or one fella was very honest with me. He said, you know, I kind of like what you're doing here, but I have no idea how I could ever publish it and make any money off of it. Mm-hmm. So I'm very, very grateful that mm-hmm. Wiffenstock uh, had the courage to take it up when so many others said no to it. Yeah, I've had the same experience with some publishers as well that <laughs> they said, they said, we love your book. Uh, one publisher said, we love your book, but we've chosen to not publish on this issue. Yes, um, yes. Another one said, uh, we love your book, but we don't think it'll sell because here's what they said. People only want to buy books that reinforce their wacky beliefs. <laughs> and I'm like, and I, I'm like, okay, well, I get the yeah. fact that you have to make money and, right. and I can't fault you for that. You have to make a profit. My only thought is make sure that you're not publishing those books that reinforce people's wacky beliefs just to make a dollar either. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yes. Now earlier, let's finish this up. We, we, we were talking about the fact that uh, this is a process, you know, I, you and I have had experiences. I think we're farther along on the journey than, than Vinny is. And it was a process of coming to theological convictions about how to mm-hmm. understand the new Testament, and the old Testament, and what God says to Israel and the land and, and those promises. And what does that mean for us as well as the current, climate of justice issues. It, it, just, it took us a long time to, to, to get to there. And, mm-hmm. and Vinny commented earlier about how w- when you hear these things, I mean, like, I don't know what to do with this, because what does it mean for this? Or what does it mean for that? What does it mean for that? So what are some steps that you might encourage people to take as far as going the next? Okay, they heard this podcast. They don't know what to think. They want to believe that we're wrong, but they don't know. They're not sure why. What, do you, what are some steps that you recommend? Right. Well, I guess I'd first of all say read Rob's book and then read my book. Uh, <laughs> to, In that order. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to become more well-educated on the subject. And hmm. then in the closing chapters of my book, I encourage people to A, educate themselves as we're discussing here. And B, immerse yourselves in the gospels. Hmm. Remind yourself of who Jesus is and how Jesus taught us to live Mm. and think and what discipleship really means 
in terms of loyalty to the kingdom of God, not the kingdoms of this world, not the kingdom of America, not the kingdom of Israel, but the kingdom of God, which does not align itself with any earthly kingdoms whatsoever. And I find myself revisiting uh, Jesus's parable about the Good Samaritan quite often. And the little twist that Jesus does, you know, he is asked, who's my neighbor? Who am I supposed to be loving? Mm -hmm. And Jesus tells a story that flips that on its head and says, no, the, really the question is, who are you being a neighbor to? Exactly. And in the story, a man is a neighbor to his sworn enemy, to someone that he knows hates him. And to someone that he has been taught to hate as well. And he rescues him from a ditch and does whatever needs to be done to nurse him back to health and care for him. There is, I, this can be applied all around the world. And there are all kinds of places where Christians are thinking about this and need to think about it more deeply for the purposes of our conversation here. There is a, an entire ethnic group of people, the Palestinians, who are in a ditch. Mm. And they have been beat up, pummeled to the point of death, nearly, and abandoned by political Zionist activists in Israel-Palestine. And Jesus is asking us, why aren't you rescuing them? Why haven't you stopped along the way to help pull these people out of the ditch and nurse them back to health and help them get back up on their feet again? That's, that's our obligation as followers of Jesus. And that needs to be our top priority, following Jesus. And I think of what that's just so well said, that the implications of, or even the impact of that for our Christian witness to the world Yes. Well, and and it's not just the Palestinians or the Israelis. The the Uyghurs in China are, are being treated yes. this way. And when the church stands up and, and advocates for the oppressed, they'll know you're Christians by, by your love, right? Yes. When you act like I act, the world's going to be attracted to me. And you, you look at the Rohingya Muslims, and you, you realize this right. doesn't have to be only Christians. It doesn't have to be people of our kind. It, it's right. when we advocate for justice around the world, the implications of that for our witness. And contrary, when we don't advocate for that or even advocate for injustice, our witness is, is incredibly harmed as well. So there's exactly. a lot at stake here. And it's, it's the church and it's the kingdom that's at stake. Exactly. Um, and we could we can go even further, of course, because I think what we're doing for the modern state of Israel is actually not helping the modern state of Israel either. No. So it's not even loving towards them either. So no, no, not at all. Well, David, it's been wonderful having you on, a wonderful conversation. And uh, when I first ha had this dialogue, I, was, I know who your publisher is, and I was talking with your, with your editor. I thought the book was going to be out by July or August. So like, hey, let's get nah. David on right away. And, <laughs> and it turns out we're advocating for a book that's not going to be on, uh, available for sale. Well, hopefully the pre-publication, at least you can, you yes. can order it and, and it'll come out soon. And uh, this is going to be a conversation that we're going to continue to have. You have another book that we definitely want to talk to you about as well. I Pledge Allegiance is a yep. wonderful text. And so uh, we'll, we'll see about rescheduling you for that and getting, getting you on board as well. We want to thank you for, for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, been great to be with you. Thanks.
Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. Uh, continue listening to the Determined Truth podcast, and thank you for tuning in today. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.